You are listening to the Become a Guitarist Today podcast with Adam Roach. Hey there, and welcome to episode number 164 with my guest today, Ben Hutchinson from the band Chemis. So in today's podcast, we talk all about the new album called Deceiver, which is out right now. So the opening track you're hearing is from the new album, so make sure you check out the show notes where you can find all the links to get the album as well. And while you're there, make sure you check out all my other links for my sponsors, which include Custom Guitar Picks, Musician, and Arnold Krakowka. You don't need a drummer to make an amazing metal song. All you need is access to tracks produced in a great studio by a great engineer. My full-length drum tracks are crafted using the best sounding samples I've been developing for over a decade and have been used by thousands of professional musicians worldwide up to the highest level in the industry, including John Five and Gus G. Stop wasting hours of your time trying to program drums and stop wasting tons of money to have your drummer record in a studio for mediocre results. With my drum tracks, you don't need to worry about any of that. Just drag and drop your tracks, press record, and you're done. All of that with a killer, authentic sound. So go to my website, arnokrakowka.com to start rocking. So let's go over to the interview now with Ben Hutchinson. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing all right, man. Th- thanks for doing this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, how are you doing? Yeah, excellent. Just uh, just kicking back on this Friday morning here. <laughs> yeah, right on. It's always wild to me. So because we're doing press with so many people from different parts of the world, yeah. like the guy I just got done talking to is in New Zealand. So, okay. you know, that makes sense given your time. But like yesterday or a day before or 100 years ago, I don't know how time works anymore. <laughs> I had an interview with a guy that was in um, Vancouver, British Columbia, and then a guy that was in Brazil, and then a lady that was in Eastern Germany. And my sense of time was just fucking wrecked after that. Because they were saying, like, good afternoon, good morning, good evening. I'm like, what did, uh, what's happening? And then I go downstairs, and I'm like, it's lunchtime. What's happening yeah. right now? <laughs> so whereabouts are you? Uh, I'm in Denver. So yeah, so it's uh, it's 5 p.m. Okay. I'd say the end of the workday, but, you know, like, I'm a musician, so, like, the workday kind of never ends. Yeah, exactly. It's, all, it's like the workday is over when I'm asleep, and even yeah. then, not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, so congratulations with the album, too. It's fantastic. Hey, thank you so much, my friend. I really appreciate it. Yeah. It, uh, it feels really good to be talking about it. It feels really good for it to come out. There's something kind of surreal about finishing an album and, March or April, whenever we finished yeah. it. And then, you know, to have it come out eight months later, and it's like, oh, yeah, we did do all that, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. You got to remember what, what you did. One of the things that was different with writing this album is Phil and I taught ourselves to use Guitar Pro. I was going to ask about that, yeah. I heard you yeah. talk it. You know, it's funny. I Like, I, I jokingly say that, you know, Phil and I are Luddites. And, like, that's not true, like, at all. Mm. But there's something about Guitar Pro. Well, I won't say it's not true at all. But it's by and large not true. It's 
it's true in so much as, you know, you get to a point in your life where like you stop trying to keep up with whatever the newest bit of tech is, unless it's guitar gear, then I'm like, I'm always right there. But I associate Guitar Pro with first and foremost, uh, Necrophagist. And I love Necrophagist, but Tech Death couldn't be farther away from what we do in Chemist, both in execution and in the sort of like ethos of what it is. Mm -hmm. And so in my head, I was always like, it's too, I don't know, inhuman, it's too robotic, it's too precise, whatever. But because we literally could not be in the same place, we had to figure something out. We tried jamming over like Zoom and Skype and like, oh my God, that didn't work. The latency (laughs) was so bad. I mean, it was just, it was a mess. So we started using Guitar Pro and one of the unexpected but absolutely fantastic sort of uh, outcomes of that is that here we are, you know, eight months removed from recording the album. We're starting to put together, you know, sets to go play live. And relearning these songs is a lot easier when you've literally tabbed out every single part. Mm. And, you know, there's nothing more frustrating than forgetting how something goes, especially if you haven't even recorded it properly yet. But even, you know, from like older albums, um, anytime we want to play something off, say like Absolution that we don't ever play live, there's a lot of like sitting down, putting headphones on and like pulling one ear (laughs) off. What were we doing? And trying to parse through the, the really fuzzy tone. So having this sort of documented history of how every single layer goes on the album has made getting the songs together for rehearsal so much less stressful. I mean, it's still a matter of remembering how to play it, but at least you know how it's supposed to go. And you don't have to spend all that time be like, was I on the 10th fret or did I bend up? What was I doing here? So that's been nice. Yeah. So, I mean, I used to use Guitar Pro a long time ago, but... Do they have the, the facility now where you can actually play into it and it tabs out itself or you do have to tab it out? I, I tab it all out. Okay. Um, th- I think it has some sort of audio to MIDI function, but I mean, like like any kind of audio to MIDI stuff, you know, it's so imperfect that I can do it by hand. I mean, the same is true when it comes to recording. The idea of like using a plugin that's going to take like drum hits and turn them into MIDI hits it's always going to be off by enough samples that it's going to be out of phase. Like I'll just draw those hits in by hand, you know, until they get that, that technology really good, at which point it might turn into the Terminator. So, you know, I don't know that I'm like really dying for the tech to get that good. So, you know, there is certainly that, um, that sort of, I, I guess like, internal transcription process where you've got a guitar and you're like, all right, fifth fret type five, where's the, what's the chord? What am I playing? Okay. It's this. Yeah. But the flip side of it is being able to see the song as a composition, like quite literally see it for me. And actually Phil and I were talking about this just the other day. He, he likes this as well, that it gives you this sort of bird's eye perspective that we never really had before that, you can hear, you know, the the demo or, you know, we do full pre-production before we go into the studio proper. So yeah. even when we have, you know, done that first basic recording the album, you don't have the same sort of analytic ability that you do when you are literally seeing the notes in front of you. Yeah. And there's something about that visual information, I think, that's useful for not only like understanding what you're doing, but also just for figuring out like this part might be too busy. Like my eyes are just telling me there's too much happening here. Mm-hmm. And, or maybe my eyes are telling me what my ears were telling me before, mm-hmm. you know, getting that sort of confirmation thing. 
and also being able to craft things, uh, I guess, in a more intentional fashion when it comes to adding layers. So instead of saying, I think I could put a layer here. Yeah, I will build that layer out, that clean guitar layer. Does it suck? Then I'll just take it out. And we didn't have to waste time in the studio. Yeah. Um, you know, if I, or, you know, especially when we're doing stuff on acoustics, because our electrics are tuned down two whole steps and then the low string is dropped. So it's a drop D variant down two whole steps. Oh, well. I'm not going to tune an acoustic down to a low <laughs> A sharp. That would be, you know, unintelligible. Yeah. Yeah. So our acoustics are always down a half step. Okay. And just being able to quickly, you know, sort of say, all right, well, this is how I would play it on a clean electric. I can just drag it over to the track for the differently tuned acoustic, and it's going to modify the fingerings for me. And it's going to save me minutes or hours or days of trying to figure out not only where my hands could go, but also like, oh, that chord voicing is is really painful. Let me just alternate, you know, this. Let me just move it to a different register. And it's just, it's such a more, much more efficient way of getting through those early stages of pulling material together and getting it sort of ready to feed into the proverbial chemist machine. Mm. And so do you write out both parts, like the, the harmony lines and everything when you do yours? It depends. I mean, if one of us hears a harmony with something we're writing, then yeah. yeah. Um, you know, this time around, we would write it out. There were also times where, you know, one of us wrote a riff and said, you know, I think there should be a harmony, but I can't figure out what it is because a straight harmony doesn't work. Mm. Uh, for instance, the um, the sort of instrumental final chorus in uh, Shroud of uh, Lethe has this harmony well it starts off just this sort of lead line that phil's playing and then it splits into two harmony guitars but we could not figure out what the harmony needed to be because a straight harmony sounded bad you know sort of like a diatonic harmony but playing in like straight fourths or fifths sounded bad it was like we we were just losing our minds but because we had it in guitar pro what we could do is literally go note by note and say that sounds good. Nope, that should be unison. Nope, that just needs to be a fourth, I guess. Okay. And it it made it a lot less, I think, I think stressful. And it also made for this kind of cool sense of being a composer in a way that doesn't normally happen when you're in a rock band. Yes. And I'm sure that anyone that is a classically trained composer would roll their eyes so hard <laughs> it went into the back of their skull. But... It, you know, it really is a matter of learning how to work with multiple instruments, occupying different parts of the sonic spectrum, you know, applying different tonalities. In our case, you know, using effects or amps or whatever. But there is, or at least there can be this compositional dimension to it that we had just never experienced before and that I personally found very satisfying mm -hmm. that I could get so in-depth with it and then just zoom out say, but, but yes, that's a song. Take it to the rehearsal space once we could safely all get together. And then that was the final filter. It was like, you could you could think we had a cool song worked out, but we knew the moment we started playing a riff together, if it was perfect or if it needed to be tweaked or too fast, too slow, does it need a swing feel? Because that human element is essential. There's no way we could write an album only using Guitar Pro, go yeah. record it yeah, and yeah. feel about it the way we do with Deceiver. It's got to still go through the sort of collective filter of of hearing it and just letting 
all of those cliches, letting the vibe sit with you and knowing how it feels, man, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. How about the uh, the bass? Do you guys, like, do you do bass on guitar pro as well? Yeah. Um, and, you know, originally we weren't sure what was going to happen with tracking bass on the album. So um, it was a matter of, well, I guess there were two things. There, there was the compositional dimension as well, where it's like, if I'm in here structuring riffs and stuff, let's see what the bass can do, you know, to still be a bass guitar and not try to, you know, overthink it. You know, we're not bringing Alex Webster in to play on the album or anything, <laughs> but, you know, what are some places the bass can go? And then when I decided that I was going to play bass because I already knew how to play the songs and I'd literally been writing these bass lines the whole time, yeah. I had this, you know, sort of starting place to to take everything so that when I went into the studio, um, Dave Otero, our producer, uh, you know, he and I sat down and we went song by song, part by part, and figured out, because admittedly, as a guitarist who likes to solo, yeah. there may have been some initial ideas that were a little bit over the top. And Dave would stop me and say, look, stop. You're not a prog band. Yeah. Like the bass does what it does in chemists. It glues things. Mm. Like, yes, let's let's have it do some stuff it hasn't done before. But if it's not combining what is happening with the guitars and the drums, if it's just doing its own thing, then, you know, it's undermining the kind of ethos of the band and it's it's taking away from the music. Yeah. And it I wound up having a lot of fun tracking the bass. I'd like I've never recorded bass on an album. Okay. And there just the things I had to worry about are not things I have to worry about on guitar. Like string noise is such a problem on bass, <laughs> especially distorted bass. Yeah. And, and when we play guitar, because we have that sort of whatever doomy and or classic metal influence, like we will shake notes sour on purpose. But, you know, on bass, unless that's exactly what the guitars are doing, the bass has to be spot on because there is nothing that's that is more unsettling than hearing a bass that's slightly like out of tune or, you know, has has misfreded something. Yeah. And. So the sort of like looseness and vibe that I'm used to being able to, uh, you know, embrace when I'm especially like tracking rhythms, I had to play very mechanically, you know, as a bass player, like this has to be on, the timing has to be on. Also, like, look, as guitar players, we can get away with a looseness in timing a lot of the time mm. that turns out bass players can't. And so it was a lot of like, Oh, okay. Can you actually turn the metronome up for me? I need to make sure that I'm really locking this in. But at the same time, there's an immediacy of what's happening on the bass where like you hit that low note, you know, especially when it's a big slow riff, you hit that low A sharp and, you know, the bass was going through, uh, what all did we have? We had neural DSPs parallax going. We also had, a Sansamp into an SVT Classic into an Ampeg 810. And then I think we also had an orange 8200 into something, maybe another Ampeg 810. So like there was a lot of bass. And so when I had that low note, that was just, I mean, I felt it in my guts, yeah. you know, my toes were wiggling. It was so awesome. And uh, so, you know, that sort of immediate visceral satisfaction. I was like, okay. I, I think I get it. I don't want to start playing bass in a band. A guitar yeah. makes more sense to me, but I have this newfound appreciation for what it takes to be even just like a solid bass player. 
much less a really good bass player because I am not a really good bass player and I'm fine with that. I, I will settle for, uh, you know, solid every day of the week. Yeah. Yeah. Cause actually, cause the album I'm doing at the moment, I'm playing bass as well, but I'm a yeah, guitar is my main instrument. But yeah, like you're saying, you really do have to not think like a guitarist. You got to think like a bass player and really lock in with, yeah. that, lock in with that bass drum, you know? That's it. Yeah. At times I almost think more like a drummer, yeah. which, um, you know, like, I've gotten, I think, pretty good at programming drums for demos. Like, I have been playing music with Zach long enough that I can do a pretty good Zach impression when I'm programming drums. Yeah. But it's different when you're sitting there and you're, you know, putting MIDI hits on a grid yeah. versus a stringed instrument in your hands. Like, I understand rhythmic subdivision, you know, in my brain in a way that sometimes my hands don't necessarily agree with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that sounds great, though. Like, you did really well. Thank you so much. I, 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 and I really like the tone that we got. I was, mm. was one thing I really pushed for. I said, you know, yeah, it's got to be big and fat and low end heavy, but like, I want some of that grind. I want some of that, you know, sort of, I don't even know if it's like a classic metal sounding. I almost associate it more with more like modern rock and metal, yeah. but, but for, and I don't want it to be like clangy, like I'm playing slap bass, but for instance, I think Red Fang has a, just Aaron for Red Fang's bass tone is phenomenal. And the way that it sits in the mix and that it has that sort of upper mid-range grind that's fuzzy and gives a texture to what's going on instead of just being low end. Mm -hmm. I was like, I want whatever the appropriate chemist version of that is in our, our stuff. I don't want it to just be low end. I want it to add this like three dimensionality to the tone. And so when we got done blending all of these, you know, tones to get the overall bass sound, I was just absolutely over the moon. Yeah. And uh, I really love the way it sits in the mix. Yeah, for sure. Now I must ask you, because I'm at the stage now where we're doing the, uh, the double guitar tracks. So how many guitar tracks did you do of the rhythms? Like, did you do like five, six? Yeah, so what's interesting is we didn't, we didn't quad track most of the album. There's, you know, there's a left and right rhythm on everything. And then there's a few places where we did, I mean, when you say quad track, I think people think about the sort of like Metallica approach where it's just, it's all about getting the fattest, you know, tightest thing. And when we added that second layer of rhythms, it wasn't about getting a fatter, tighter sound. I mean, the orange amps we use, we use Rock Reverb 100s. Yeah. Um, you know, they are very mid-range focused in a way. They're like, if mids are the appropriate, you know, part of the sonic spectrum for guitars, then orange are the creme de la creme of that because they don't have a super extended, you know, sort of sub bass range. And they don't really have a lot of information above like 12K, 13K, something like that. And that's cool. That's always been our sound, but we're like, for some of these parts, we want to add this other layer. And what we thought we wanted to do was add a layer with a Boss HM2 and have the just like more of a texture layer than anything. Mm -hmm. And we spent a couple hours trying out, I mean, we had a, a vintage um, Boss, uh, like uh, made in Japan HM2. We had the Behringer version. Uh, we have my uh, Dunwich, I've got a Dunwich um, custom HM2 with a four band EQ. Um, something else. I think we had five HM2 variants and we didn't use any of them. What we wound up using was a parametric EQ 
from this uh, German boutique manufacturer called Licklerm. Um, and I don't even think the guy makes pedals anymore. I think he's working with some other company now, but he was making pedals that were all named after, mm, what is it called? His Dark Materials, is that it? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like a fantasy series. Uh-huh. And he he had made some, uh, some overdrives and some uh, like a noise gate and like a chorus pedal, but he made this really wild parametric EQ that every band had something like 20 dB of gain or cut on it. And so we dialed in roughly the EQ shape of what an HM2 does with that weird sort of double peaked high mid thing and then the uh, elevated low mids. And we ran it into uh, a PRS Archon, 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 uh, which is like, it's a high gain amp, but it's like a pretty smooth amp. Mm. But that EQ into that turned out to be the most ungodly, like unwieldy sound. And we were like, this is perfect. Because if you look at it on a like a visual EQ and then you look at the orange tone, the two sit together beautifully. The orange like fills out the mid-range in that, you know, unruly, uh, call it fake HM2 tone. Yeah. And so we added that on the sort of like slow death doom part in Shroud of Lethe. Um, it happens right before the blast beats in Avernal Gate. Um, a couple other places just like here and there for texture. But again, like because of the vibe we wanted on the album, even with the, you know, tighter metal parts and the more sort of technically inclined parts, we're, I won't say we'll never be a quad track everything band, mm-hmm. but a combination of the vibe and also just the fatness of those orange amps, just one rhythm left and right was all we needed. Yeah. 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 Part of it too, it helps that like we don't use the same, the exact same tone. So like we tracked using the same head uh, and the same cab. It's, we used my magical orange 412 that we've used on every chemist album. Um, there's just no other cab that we found that sounds quite like it. It's got V30s and uh, WGS uh, ET65s, which I think are maybe greenback variants, uh, not variants, like clones, I suppose, mm. uh, in an X pattern. And it's just got this fatness and this massive low end. But between our different guitars, different pickups, and different uh, overdrives in front, I use uh, our Earthquaker plumes and Phil uses um, an exotic EP booster. It, it shapes enough of a sort of tonal difference up front that it gives you a fuller stereo image. Again, it's like to juxtapose it against Metallica where like James was like, I'll come and use the same guitar and the same amp. And you know, there are stories of him tracking so tightly that it would collapse into mono. <laughs> um, I feel like, I, we, I don't wanna worry about that. I don't wanna worry about trying to get it that yeah. perfect. And I, I think that would, be a bad fit for what this band is. There's always got to be that that human element um, that even if we could get four rhythm tracks lined up on the grid like that, it would feel wrong. It would feel disingenuous. Mm. That's why I love hearing you know, things about this where you, you go back and listen to the album again, get like a, a whole new appreciation of it. So here's a cool little thing you can listen for. In uh, Shroud of Lethe, when it gets to that big death doom part, everything drops out. This is after the... Uh, second chorus, I guess. And it's just my guitar and it's just playing that really slow riff right before the drums hit. There's this just brutal squelch of feedback. And that was spur of the moment. So I was tracking, uh, I had done my rhythms on that 
And then I was like, all right, I'm going to do my ugly layer and then Phil's going to do his. And the amp was in standby. We just weren't really paying attention. Dave started the take. We're here in the metronome. And then we like Phil and I both look over and realize the amp's in standby. So he flips it on. And because it, it had been on standby, I didn't have my volume rolled down or anything. So the like the way that that feedback explodes in is just because we were like, oh crap. And then flipped on the amp and it is just Oh, well. <laughs> and it's just this, this really happy accident that, you know, then we had to figure out like, okay, we have to figure out how to duplicate that when Phil's tracking in a second. Okay, where did he, and it was like, can we make lightning strike twice? Um, but I love those little moments and yeah. that kind of stuff happened because this time around we had the time and resources to, you know, to be sort of uh, uh, more exploratory in the studio. Um, not like we've been like under the gun in the past per se, mm -hmm. but there was still a sense of like, okay, we know how many days we have. And then like, that's it. Yeah. And here we were like, we have all of this time blacked out. We know that if we rush through it, it would only take this amount of time. Let's let these songs continue to grow and continue to live. And um, I, Dave put it, I think quite succinctly, he said, in the past, we've treated this like it's the heavy metal factory and we're coming in to stamp out songs. Now, we're still very much in the creative process and these songs aren't done until they are literally getting pressed. Mm. And it was a very satisfying way to approach it. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah. I mean, I could sit here and talk for another hour. Like I love nerding out about this stuff. <laughs> I don't get to do it. And uh, anytime I talk about it, um, when I'm outside of my office, my wife is like, please, she was like, I, she's like, I love you. And I love your music. I don't care what kind of pickups you put in the guitar today. Like, that's fair. That's absolutely fair. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. No, hopefully yeah, we'll get to catch up again anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I would uh, very much enjoy that. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to me, Adam. I, yeah, uh, I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. No, thank you very much. And hopefully, uh, yeah, good luck with the album too. All uh, right. Right on. Thank yeah. you so much. No Take care. See you later. Bye-bye.